is it, is it possible, is it possible for people to move a mountain? I mean, to really move a mountain. I'm not talking about have faith to move mountains. I'm talking, is it possible to move mountains? Um, on, in a physical sense, it is. In the last couple of years, they've been working up in the Allegheny Mountains to get some roads up there to get to mine coal for mountains, and they completely took down some Allegheny Mountains. And to do that, they need some massive, massive equipment and some expert engineers, people that knew what they were doing, in order to actually completely move a mountain so the roads could be straight, so they could fill in some valleys, and they could knock down some peaks. It's amazing work that they did. But in the same way, in the same way, on a spiritual level, on a heart level, God has some engineers, he sent some engineers, that, are going to, that have done some massive work in the church, and he still wants that work to be done in our hearts, which have mountains and valleys and all kind of impediments to the gospel, the king's highway, to reach us. And so I want you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 3. And the title today is Road Construction. We're going to basically see God's work and how he works in setting up the highway of the king in the hearts of people. So I'm going to call this road construction, valleys and hills. And you'll understand that in a minute when we get into it. But if you can stand, we're going to read verses 1 through 12 in Matthew chapter 3. It begins in verse 1, in those days, and this would be 27 years after Jesus and his family went to Egypt and came back to Nazareth. So he said 27 years of life, growing up to be a man. And during that time, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in a river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, oh, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones, these mere stones, to raise up children for Abraham, even now. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff 
He will burn with unquenchable fire. You may be seated. So I call this basically discussion about road construction, and that road construction concerns the valleys and the hills of our heart. And to do this road construction, he is going to send probably the greatest spiritual engineer the Bible ever knew, and his name is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to Scripture, was Jesus' cousin. If you remember the story, Elizabeth, who was old in age, I don't know how old she was, but they say she's past the childbearing years, became pregnant with John. Mary came to see her, the mother of Jesus, and when Mary came to see her, the child in, Mary, in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. That's John the Baptist, because even in the womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was the chosen vessel of God. He is known as the last Old Testament prophet. Actually, Jesus said he's one of the greatest prophets that ever came, ever came. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi said Elijah is going to be sent from the Lord, and he is going to come before the appearance, the awesome appearance of the Lord. And so along came this guy, dressed like Elijah, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, Elijah used to dress with camel's hair and a leather belt and grew his hair long. And in the same manner, so did John. So you could say this. First of all, John was a vessel sent by God. In the book of John, chapter 1, verse 5, there's a very interesting statement. It says this. There was a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness to the light. So in other words, John was specifically sent by God to bring people's attention to the light, Jesus. It's, uh, there's just a side note, there's a big question. Does history make men, or do men, women, make history? Well, it's apparent in John 1.5, John was sent to change the world. And I ask the question for you, why were you sent? Are you bearing witness to the light where you're at? Like when you go to places, is it different because you're there? Or do you just kind of blend in, become a wallflower, let life happen around you? Or do you affect life? John came to make a difference. And boy, did he make a difference. The historian Josephus said people from all over came out to see him. Hundreds and thousands. From Judea, Jerusalem, down to the Jordan River to hear John. John was what you call a Nazarite for life. Not from the city of Nazareth, but the first five letters, N-A-Z-A-R, is a Hebrew root meaning separated one. And in the Old Testament, they had what's called the Nazarite vow in the book of Numbers. You could take a vow, kind of to be a monk, a separated person for a year, two years, to be separated, to become holy for God, to just dedicate yourself to God. And the way you do that is you wouldn't cut your hair. So many people believe Samson was a Nazarite. You wouldn't cut your hair. You would not eat grapes, drink wine, walk around cemeteries or dead bodies. And in John's case, he ate locusts and wild honey. 
Locusts were the only, was the only insect that is allowed on the Jewish kosher laws. And so what he'd do is he'd probably fry them up and just chew them. A lot of good protein from locusts. And then dip them in some wild honey and you got a good meal there. But the idea of locusts and wild honey really goes deeper than that. He did not have to cultivate that food, work for it. It was completely provided from God. So as a Nazarite, what he's saying is, I am set apart, 100% dependent on God. And he became an incredible vessel that God used. I like to think of it like this. Let's say, if you, if you ever talk to people who like to shoot bow and arrow, often when they practice, they won't use the sharpest arrow in their quiver. Sometimes they'll use an arrow to practice that has some you know, feathers in the back missing or maybe a little warp, but when it's time for the kill, the good hunter will bring out that arrow whose shaft is sharp, straight and sharp, and ready for just the kill. And I think that's what John the Baptist was. When God wanted to do the most work to prepare the road, he sent the purest and holiest. And people came from all over, and I mean, they wanted to hear what he had to say, and that's why he's called a voice. He's a voice in the wilderness. And his message was, prepare the way to the Lord. So in Isaiah chapter 40, it says a voice is in the wilderness, and he's going to raise up every valley, and he's going to cut down every hill. So the idea is to get a valley, a road across the valley, you need to build it up. To get a road across a hill so it's straight, you need to cut it down. So he sent this voice, and this voice that was piercing, and it was loud, and it cut to the heart. And so when John spoke, people knew they had to do something about God. Have you ever met a speaker, like when they speak, you're not just riveted, but you know you have to choose. There's two people I've seen in my life. When they spoke, people listened. One was, of course, Billy Graham. I worked in his crusade in Cleveland in the 90s. And I'll tell you what, Billy Graham wasn't necessarily the deepest theologian. His sermons weren't crafted with incredible skill necessarily. But when he spoke, it's almost like heaven came. And people would listen. And then he'd ask people to come up, and they would come up. There's this other guy I heard. His name was George Verwer. Strangest guy ever. He'd come to my school at Moody Bible Institute, he'd wear this really weird jacket that have a world on it, and he'd be bouncing like a beach ball that had a world on it, and he would preach, and we, our preaching class said, now when you go to listen to George Verwer, don't preach like him, because he's a terrible preacher. But when he'd preach, he'd just say whatever's on his mind, and you had to listen. And then he'd say, all of you who want to repent, come forward, and people, like even in Moody, would come forward. It was the weirdest thing I ever saw. But that's what John had. His voice cut. And I think it's still meant to cut you. And when you read what he has to say, he wants you to take it deadly serious. So to do that, what he does is he invited everybody out to the wilderness. So the wilderness of Judea was a barren place. The Jordan snaked along this dusty, arid plain. And people would come 
from all over to the wilderness. Sometimes I wonder, why the wilderness? Why not a synagogue in Jerusalem? Why not a city square where everybody can listen? Why the wilderness? I think for two reasons. I think it took sacrifice to get there. But I think the second reason is because the wilderness is a place of isolation, of barrenness, where God strips you down to the bone to get your attention. Where you can hear the wind again and the sun beats on you and you realize how weak you are. The wilderness is used often in the Old Testament as a place of encounter with God. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 2, God said, I took my young wife out, out to the wilderness and there... She learned to trust me, to be devoted to me as a young wife to her husband. So it's a place of kindling intimacy with God. In the book of Hosea, chapter 2, 14 to 15, the wilderness was a place where God spoke tenderly to Israel. And the idea is this, is that in the quietness of the wilderness, in the quietness of nothing, God can finally get a word in edgewise. that still small voice can finally speak to you. And in Ezekiel chapter 20, the wilderness is a place of face-to-face confrontation with God. Have you ever been to, metaphorically speaking, the wilderness where you were in isolation for a period of time and your soul was exposed? Because if you haven't, I'm not sure you've, ever really heard from God. Paul the Apostle, when he first got saved, he gets saved, road to Damascus, goes to meet a couple of disciples, and then for three years, according to Galatians chapter 1, 17 to 19, he was in the wilderness of Arabia for three years where he met Jesus face to face. Jesus taught him face to face. I remember when I first was coming to know Christ. It was really right around this time of year and I was living over by Cleveland and Lake Erie froze over that year. And I'll never, re- I'll never forget how quiet it is by the lake when it's frozen. And I'd go out there. I'd, I'd go to the frozen lake after I had a terrible sales call or life was just collapsing in on me. And I would sit by that lake And I don't know what it was, but God made me small there. Have you ever had the wilderness experience? I think that's what sometimes happens even after Christmas and New Year's and everybody goes back home and you're in your house, the tree's been taken down and it's just quiet and a depression happens for some people. But I think sometimes that's a way for God to say, you need him. Are you listening? Have you ever been to a place where you see yourself as the weak person that you are, where God can finally get a word in edgewise? And when you're there in the wilderness, will you listen? Because he has one thing to say. It's usually the same message, and it's this. Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent is a message of urgency. Basically, is the same idea where Joshua is getting ready to leave and he says, choose you this day who you're going to follow. Are you going to keep going down the same path you've always gone on? Or today, are you going to make up your mind and get on a new one? Repent literally means to turn around and go the other way. Are you tired of going down the same road? Because John's message is still being applied. Well, some of you might say, well, why should I? Why, why should I be urgent? Because the kingdom's coming down the road. It's near. It's like the train is pulled into your station and the king's on it. He wants to invade your life today. That's why in verse 10 he says, even now, What is the kingdom of God? It's simple. You want to boil it all down. There's a lot of definitions. But to boil it all down, it means God's rule is now being put in place. Whether you like it or not, His kingdom, His laws, His throne is being established. And you can either join with it or not. But it also means, when you say kingdom of heaven, it also means the king is here. I want you to look real quick at Zechariah. Go back about three books to the Old Testament. And it's Zechariah chapter 14. It's actually two books, Malachi and Zechariah. But many scholars think this is, the, this is what John had in mind when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is a prophecy of the future in tangible form what's going to happen. But I also believe in spiritual form this is happening now. Verse 9 of chapter 14, Zechariah. It says this. The Lord will be king. It's not a if, it's not a maybe, but it's a will. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, on the day of his arrival, on the day when he comes, the Lord will be one and his name one. And the question is, what will you do with Zechariah 14.9? Will you bow your knee to it or will you go on the same path as you've always gone? Now there's a way to tell what you're going to do. There's a way to tell if you are a valley, which means that you are humble and contrite, somebody where it needs to be lifted up for the road to be on, or a hill, somebody that's proud and needs to be laid low. Because really when you hear this call, repent for the kingdom is at hand, you'll respond to it based on what you are. So what I mean by that is first you can be a person of the valley, valley people. According to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4, they will be raised up for the king to come. They will be lifted up. When the good news comes, they will rejoice in it. Jesus says about valley people later in the book of Matthew, they are the 
poor in spirit. Broken. How do you know if you're a valley person? Well, you're going to respond the way a certain... There's two groups, and watch how they respond in this. If you're a valley person, you'll respond like they did in 5 and 6. Look at 5 and 6. So John comes out, and all of Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. So they were flocking him, and they, the people who were ready for his arrival, were baptized by him in a river, confessing their sins. So... There's two things true about valley people. How do you know? The first thing is that you confess. You confess sin. And now, confess is a really easy word. It doesn't necessarily mean, I got caught, I confess, it was me. Confession means, here's all it means, is the way God sees things, I agree. I agree in my mind, in my heart, and in my soul. So I agree that I broke his law. It's a holy law. In fact, John the Baptist came to use the law as a hammer to say nobody can stand up against the law. So the law exposes where we go wrong. The law says, oh, you got angry? It's like murder. You lusted after a woman? It's like adultery. You haven't put the Lord first with all your heart, all your soul. So the law convicts. And then the other thing about confession is you agree that I know, God, it troubles you and it troubles me and I'm, I'm angry at myself. And then confession moves to the point of action, which is they got baptized. In this case, it wasn't baptism in the same sense of Christian baptism where we join the body of Christ. It's baptism, which called, it's called ritual ablution. It's, it's a symbolic cleansing marking that I'm going to commit to a new path. I'm going to go to a diff, a, down a different way. I'm not going to live like I did before. And to show it, I'm going to publicly go to John and get baptized. So you can take both of these statements. Is how can you tell... You have a heart that is a valley, a contrite, lowly. You're ready to be old with the, done with the old and in with the new. You're ready to be done. That's what repent means. Now there's another group of people that we're going to see here, and I'm going to call them the hilltoppers. Those who think they're on top of the world, I don't need to do anything different. And they're called here Pharisees and Sadducees. And they came to the baptism, but they didn't get baptized. So you could say this about them. Is, uh, first of all, they're going to be made low, but the true hilltoppers, they come to watch, not participate. They stand back. They criticize. They think they're better. And... Uh, John even calls them a brood of vipers, meaning that inside of them is evil intent, malice. They're dark. Oh, they look good. They look really good, but they don't participate. They don't change, which is really the second thing about them you can say is they stand on their privilege, not the truth of their inward change. Look at verse 9. 
And do not presume, he's talking to the Sadducees and Pharisees, do not presume. That means don't act privileged. Don't act like you've already arrived. Don't presume. So people that are proud view their standing by their position, the family they're born into, or their title. Not their fruit. To give you an illustration of what I'm saying about both of these, when I was um, when I was in the sixth and seventh grade, the elementary school I went to got this teacher in English that was really encouraging the students to read, and I wanted to impress this teacher. So what I did is I'd come to class with my stack of books, and I'd always bring a really like deep-sounding book from the library, and she would look at my stack of books and she'd say. Oh, you're reading that? I am really impressed. So the next week, I'd go to the library and get something even more incredible. And I would read, you know, put it on a stack of my books and say, you're reading that? Wow. But I never read it. Ever. I wanted to impress her. But I never jumped into the book and got familiar with the book. It never became a part of me in my emotion or mind or life. But now when I read, I just, I don't, I don't care about telling people what I read. I just like the book. In the same way, you know, the Pharisees really weren't living this. The, a, a person like this, a person like a hilltopper, they, they go to church. They watch church. They don't become the church. It's a big difference. And if you are one of them, John says something that's kind of scary in the middle of verse 9. Listen very closely to what he's saying. He says, And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. That's probably how they talk. For I tell you. <laughs> and John says it like this. I tell you. God is able from these stones, so he probably picked up a stone off the ground. He said, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Meaning, don't think you're all that because God can make a stone his child. He made this stone, this blockhead, a child. Who shouldn't be one. So if you think you're fine... God can say, out of these stones, I'll raise up children of Abraham. He will make disciples of those who really want him. So John says, repent. And he says, the reason I say repent isn't just to change your life, but do you know who's coming? Do you know who's coming after me? I baptize, he says, with water. For repentance. So I'm just making, having you make commitments. But the guy who's coming is really strong, like a lot mightier than I am, and I can't even, I don't deserve to even take his sandals off, even carry them. Because this guy, he can baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That means when this guy comes, he is going to do a complete renewal in your life. 
The Holy Spirit will come in and clean you out. And fire means if anything bad is found in there, it's going to be burnt out of you. And if you choose not to repent, he says, well, the axe will be laid at the root of the tree and it will be burnt out. That's not a good thing. That's not good. And then he also says his whole purpose is he's got this winnowing fork in his hand and the idea is that when they would cultivate wheat, they would have chaff that would be parts that weren't wheat and they would have grain. You take the fork, you lift, throw it up in the air and the chaff would be blown away by the air and the heavy grain would land, so all that would be left is the good stuff. He's going to come and do that. And so in my mind, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. That's what this is all about, the Lord's table. It's an invitation. 